Putin's back, or else he will be anyway. And so too, it seems, are a lot of Cold War assumptions. Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow shadows. This podcast of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons like you, and also by the crisis exercise software company Conductor. So here we are again. Surprise, surprise, Putin is standing for re-election. The absolutely shocked announcement came at... The end of a gala event at the Defenders of the Heroes of the Fatherland Day, which is separate from the Day of the Defenders of the Fatherland. One can't help begin to think that they have a tad too many military-oriented national holidays. But anyway, he had just been handing out medals, and then afterwards he was meeting with a gaggle of people there, all who were clearly sort of great admirers. And then one in particular, a lieutenant colonel who had been a, the leader of a separatist military unit and now obviously rolled into the Russian military, asked him if he would stand. And he said, I will not hide that I have had different thoughts at different times, but it is now time to make a decision. I understand that there is no other way. So, with all the aplomb of a man hurling himself upon the grenade for the sake of all the other Russian people, Putin is just about willing to stand yet again. Now, it's interesting insofar as not that the decision for him to stand, of course he was going to, how could he not? He is riding a particularly saber-toothed tiger and cannot possibly relinquish power at this point. No, what's interesting was precisely the how, the how this was done. First of all, it wasn't as a part of some sort of major custom-designed event. It was almost like a kind of a throwaway element at the end. And of course, look, that was the intent. You don't need to have a massive gala to announce your standing for president if you control all the state media. And needless to say, the joyous news was blasted to all corners of the Russian Federation very quickly. We had presidential spokesman Dmitry Peskov saying that there had been so many people who had been clamouring for him to stand, blah, blah, blah. So this was an interesting event to try and make it look kind of spur of the moment and quite lo-fi, even though clearly it was totally choreographed, drawing on the whole power of the state media. And again, I think this is actually something that reflects a degree of an awareness of certain aspects, let's face it, Putin fatigue, I think, within the population. Don't want to push it too far, but a sense precisely that in fact the old man has been around quite a long time. And therefore, a belief that if they actually made too much of a sort of a pageantry of it, it might actually generate a backlash. And this is also evident in the way that Putin frames his decision to stand as something that, look, it's not for him. It's not that he really needs to do it, except that it is his, his duty. And remember, this is the man who famously once sort of 
bemoaned the hard work of his position, calling himself essentially a galley slave as he laboured for the good of Russians. I suppose, yes. Let's face it, ordinary Russians need someone to go and sleep in all of those opulent palaces and so forth. So I think in this context, again, it's, it's an attempt to, in fairly transparent form, avoid the look that he is, well, gosh, let's say a fearful and arrogant autocrat who's simply desperate to remain in power. But know that it's essentially no one else can do the job. These are not the times to, to change the captain of the ship. And, and so it has to go. And I think that's something we're going to see hammered away in the election campaign. That sense of now is not the time. What else can we say about it? Well, again, it was interesting that it was a very much a military surrounding. And this goes back to the point that actually I made in the last podcast, which is precisely that Putin, or at least his image managers, are going to be trying to work out ways in which he can, on the one hand, campaign as a war-fighting president without actually talking too much about the war itself. And just like that New Year's Eve address in which he's standing in front of a serried phalanx in camouflage, so too here. And there he is. He's surrounded by admiring figures who happen to be heroes of the Russian Federation in full uniform. So it almost by osmosis tries to give that sense that this is actually a martial president without actually him having to talk about the war, which means that he has to defend the indefensible and promise the unbearable. Well, that, that's not exactly good uh, campaigning stuff. So again, we can expect a campaign which is about the war, but much more implicitly than explicitly. And this is also visible in the initiative group that has already formed, and clearly it was already to be rolled out, um, to essentially campaign for Putin's nomination. Because remember, that, you know, technically he has to get a certain number of signatures and so forth. One of the members was indeed this Lieutenant Colonel Artyom Joga, who was the guy, sorry, Joza, who was the guy who asked Putin, well, clearly was expected to ask Putin the fateful question to which he, he could reply. But apart from that, it's actually not an especially camouflaged bunch. There are cultural figures like the actor Vladimir Mashkov, there are sports figures like the swimmer Svetlana Ramashkina. There are some political figures. I mean, there is, for example, the, the first deputy chair of the Federation Council, Andrei Turchak. But in the main, it is clear that this is meant to give that sense of a national movement to support Putin and one that is actually is made up of ordinary concerned citizens. Oh, who incidentally actually also include Mikhail Kovalchuk, physicist, and by chance brother of Yuri Kovalchuk, so-called Putin's banker, one of his oldest friends, and probably one of the people who really inclined him towards invading Ukraine, but that's a whole other matter. No, but anyway, the idea is this, the, contribu the uh, constitution of this initiative group is again meant to emphasise the fact that this is not a military political campaign, shall we say. So again, I, I, think, I think we're going to see so much of that. We're going to see Putin in proximity with awarding and speaking to military men. But on the other hand, essentially the campaign itself is going to be fought as far as they can in civilian terms.
Of course, it is going to be interesting to follow. I mean, I, I, I've talked about this on, on Twitter and, and most recently in a piece today in the Spectator's uh, Coffeehouse blog about how actually, you know, this, this election campaign, for all the fact that it's going to be totally choreographed, is still going to be interesting to watch. It'll be interesting to see who they get as the, the rival candidates to give that uh, appearance of some kind of genuine choice. But more to the point, like it or not, even the most choreographed election campaign, if it is to give the impression of being real, and remember the whole point of these elections are they are legitimating rituals. They are meant to give the impression that precisely the regime is there because the people will it, and also for those people who are disgruntled and discontented to make them feel that they are clearly in a small minority and just better shut up. So if that is to work, then at least they have to feel like they are, to a degree at least, real. And that means there have to be some disagreements. There have to be some areas of policy in which alternative perspectives will be within, admittedly, a very narrow band of the acceptable narrative, but nonetheless you know, will be able to be presented. And that necessarily opens up some limited space for, for real discussion. There's going to be so much that will need to be addressed, again, if this is to be at all credible. So... Like what? Well, obviously, to a degree, the war. But more than that, the economy. I mean, remember that this is an economy which is, on the surface, doing actually really quite well, largely thanks to military Keynesianism. And there are some communities and constituencies that are doing well out of it. But if one looks at the civilian economy, if one looks at actually the real experience of many Russians, actually things are not only looking tight, but actually the expectations are. I mean, a, a plurality of Russians believe that the economy is going to get worse, not better. And that inevitably will have to be reflected somewhere in the discussions. There are going to have to be questions about the future of Russia, about where is the vision beyond, you know, battling over the next salient in Ukraine next week. Yeah, but beyond that, what's the vision? We're going to get a lot of bromides about, you know, a great Russia, a strong Russia, a proud Russia, a Russia that stands on its own two feet, etc., and that's fine, and that goes up to a certain point. But the interesting thing is that after years of technocratic legitimation by the regime, in other words, accept us because actually we do practical things to make your life better, I think Russians have certain expectations now. They expect at least these issues to be addressed. So and for all these reasons, this is going to be an interesting test. It's going to be a test of the regime's capacity to manage the whole political process, obviously. It's going to be a test of what are the real issues that the Russian people are caring about and which therefore will lead to a degree to have to be addressed in the debates. And it'll be a test of how far opposition movements, left, right, nationalist and liberal, will be able to inject themselves into the process. We had this, this lovely case of Navalny's crew arranging for large hoarding signs saying rather anodyne things like, you know, Russia, Happy New Year, and Russia, everything will work out fine, with a QR code. And if people actually just snapped on the QR code, what they were actually taken to was a web page for their Russia without Putin campaign, which basically says vote for anyone other than, than Putin. Now, these were obviously quite quickly taken down, but that's not the point. The point is, actually, we shouldn't assume that just because Navalny is behind bars 
And in fact, at the moment, we don't know quite what his state is, since his lawyer hasn't been allowed to come in and see him. And you know, the rest of the opposition movement has basically, as a movement, very much you know, been shattered and fragmented. But nonetheless, A, there is still life in the movement. B, they do have the imagination advantage, clearly. So we'll have to see what happens. And of course, we can't forget, as I've been mentioning, the ultranationalist wing as well. You know, Girkin Strelkov continues his campaign to try and get on the ballot. I honestly cannot see for a moment that the authorities will let that happen. But it says something about the fact that even in these increasingly authoritarian times, there are still forces which are still trying to inject themselves into the political process one way or the other. So, again, there will be things for wonks like me to watch. Anyway, the main thing I wanted to discuss today was actually a policy brief that came out from all things, the German Council for Foreign Relations, DGRP, which is kind of Berlin's equivalent of, say, the Council on Foreign Relations in the States or Chatham House in the UK. And anyway, it, it produced a report called Preventing the Next War. Germany and NATO are in a race against time. And I wanted to dig into this slightly, not so much to go after the report itself, even though, as you'll soon hear, I actually have some, some serious problems with it, but in terms of what it says about assumptions about the future of Russia, the general state, I would say, of, of the sort of the, the, the debate about the future security relationship, and more to the point, what the West ought to be doing about it. I think probably the best thing is actually have a break now and then focus on that report. Just the usual mid-episode reminder that you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. Its corporate partner and sponsor is Conductor, which provides software for crisis exercises in hybrid warfare, counter-terrorism, civil affairs and the like. But you can also support the podcast yourself by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks depending on their tier, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Mark Galliotti or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the episode. So this report, and I'll leave a link in the program notes so that you can read it yourself and discover whether or not you think I've been traducing it, has kicked up quite a bit of media attention, especially in Central and Eastern Europe. Because it very starkly says that uh, Russia's imperial ambitions are such that it represents a continuing threat to NATO. And essentially that Moscow will be able to reconstitute its forces so that it will represent a threat to NATO in the next six to ten years. So NATO basically has to be ready for a full-scale war with Russia within or before that timeline. And the interesting thing is one of the things that it has really sort of highlighted is actually the degree to which there has a kind of inverse race in who can actually put the threat more recently. I mean, because after that, we had the head of Poland's National Security Bureau saying, oh, I, I broadly agree, but, but six to ten years, no, that's far too optimistic. Within three years at the end of a war in Ukraine, Russia would be ready and able to roll into NATO. And in fact, I came across in, in May, someone from the Estonian Ministry of Defence was actually saying that it was more like two years. I mean, you know, I always feel, you know, what am I bid? And the essential point of this report is, look, 
in my opinion, I suspect this was essentially written for domestic political use within Germany, because very much the emphasis is, if I can read the sort of the closing element of the sort of executive summary, Germany must deliver a quantum leap. Within the shortest time possible, it must build up the Bundeswehr in terms of personnel, expand arms production and improve resilience. This will only be possible if there is a change of mentality in society. And I think that is really important. And, and very much, as I say, I think the, the, the report is really geared at trying to address what one could say is, I don't know, is it unfair to say backsliding? But certainly a, a degree to which actually having pledged itself to, to its, its Zeitenwender and uh, as part of this whole sort of national renewal, very much a military renewal and yet it's actually hard to see the kind of progress that that would require and so i, th I think this is very much you know a, a german report for german political purposes to try and regalvanize regalvanize a process i don't know about galvanize a process anyway to basically give new urgency to a process which frankly seems to be at the moment more rhetorical than actual but the point is that, that may well be the way that, that it actually sort of generated, but it actually is talking about much wider processes. So what I want you to do is, as I said, not so much, you know, put the boot into this particular report, but use some of its assumptions as ways of, of addressing the wider issue of how we think about the relationship of Russia in the future. And what is really striking is, in a way, the, the start point. We can haggle over how quickly Russia can actually reconstitute its forces, and I'll talk more about that in a moment. But the key element is, what would it do with them? What does it want to do? Because you only build up, for example, massive forces that can invade Europe if you have the thought that you might want to invade Europe, because after all, those forces are going to be very expensive. And this very much frames it as a sort of a sense that there is a constant threat that any point at which Russia feels that it can get away with invading NATO or at least a bit of NATO, then it will. So that's why there is this need for a sort of constant sharp toothed deterrence. What the report says is Russia has consistently shown its aggressive motivation over two decades. Now, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. I mean, as I said, I think Putin is essentially believing that he's on the defence, but nonetheless, his answer is the best kind of defence is a rather aggressive offensive variety. So, you know, from his point of view, whether it's in terms of Ukraine or Georgia, these military adventures, he, in, in his head, thinks of them as pushing back against NATO encroachment. Now, on one level, that doesn't matter. I mean, if the impact is actually aggressive military operations, then you know, does it really matter quite where it comes from? But the point is, I think it is important because this is obviously much more about just Putin. He's, the report continues, President Putin and Kremlin elites in intelligentsia have long cherished the ambition to restore Russia's powerful empire and push back the influence of NATO and the EU. Well, here again, we have problems. Push back NATO and the EU... Absolutely, especially NATO, for obvious reasons, which they regard as encroaching into their sphere of, of responsibility. Again, not acceptable in, in modern day and age. Nations have their own sovereignty. They can join the alliances they want. But to, to link that with restoring Russia's powerful empire, what does that actually mean? I mean, it, it goes on to talk about the historical and 
categories in which they think are based on analogies with the Tsarist Empire and the Soviet Union. And they continue to go on about this notion that Russia exists well beyond its current borders, a concept called Ruskimir. It extends to any place where Russians have ever lived or where the Russian Empire or the Soviet Union has ever ruled. Well, I mean, this is, this is deeply problematic. I mean, I see absolutely no evidence, for example, that Putin, or even all but the most barking mad ultra-nationalists, seriously think that Russia can and should rule over not just the Baltic states, but also, for example, Finland and Poland. I mean, if you can point, to me some, point me towards something that actually says, on a programmatic policy level, that, f that Poland needs to be brought back into Russia's direct control, then please, gentle listener, let me know, because that would actually be quite, quite interesting and indeed shocking and disturbing. But the point is, this idea that, oh, well, it's, it's about reconstituting old empires. You know, why have they not moved at suitable moments into Kyrgyzstan or Tajikistan or whatever, if that's their goal? You know, this is very, very two-dimensional stuff. You don't need to actually present the Russians as some kind of evil force intent on expansion of their control. Actually, come to think of it, presumably Alaska as well comes under this category, so that actually the Russians are, must have in, you know, thoughts of, of invading the United States. Anyway, but anyway, one doesn't have to portray Russia in these caricature terms in order to appreciate that there is, of course, a continuing serious threat, and I'll come to this at the end. But this is my concern, is that in order to make a domestic argument, there is the risk that actually we build up Russia into something that it isn't, and in the process, therefore, treat it in ways that more or less drives it into a much, much more antagonistic relationship. I mean, it talks about, for example, Russia's constitution includes a provision to reintegrate Belarus into the Russian state. This is currently being implemented. Well, what we're actually talking about is the, the so-called you know, Union of Russia and Belarus, which isn't really actually being implemented, A, because uh, Lukashenko does not want to become second fiddle to Putin any more than he absolutely has to, but also more to the point, because in fact, this is about precisely uniting two countries, not actually just simply integrating Belarus into Russia. And the degree to which Russia is unwilling to make compromises to Belarus is also one of the limiting factors. So, you know, again, we just need to be a lot more careful about, about the notion. But OK, so let's let's accept that you can posit it's a perfectly valid perspective that Russia represents a continuing potential threat. The question really is, therefore, OK, but does it have the capacity to actually realise this threat? And here we have the suggestion that, yes, of course, there have been heavy losses in Ukraine, but in very short order, Russia would be able to, to rebuild it. And for example, it makes the case that Russia can train about 280,000 recruits per year. In six years, this adds up to nearly 1.7 million, and in 10 years to 2.8 million people with military training. Now, OK, that is perfectly mathematically true. However, the issue is not how many people have you got within military training. I mean, if that was the case, then frankly, why isn't Russia throwing a million troops at Ukraine at this present moment? 
the thing is not how many people have been through your frankly pretty minimalistic training program and how far they can remember the dangerous end of a Kalashnikov. The limiting factors are actually training. Can you, do you have the capacity to retrain these guys up to be able to actually use them effectively? Equipment. Do you have enough real kit to give them? And that's not just simply, you know, just simply a rifle. Do you have the facilities? I mean, where are these people going to live? Are they going to be spending the winter un under canvas? In which case, you know, what you'll actually end up with is a huge amount of frostbite. And also, and this is something I'm going to come, come to later, the politics of the situation. Can you get away with mobilising a million people? This is very much the, I would say, kind of computer game model of, of warfighting that essentially, you know, you never really have to worry about whether these people will fight, whether or not society will accept. If you've got the points, you can just form an, another unit. And so, yes, at the moment, for example, they, they clearly are able to maintain forces in Ukraine despite, you know, catastrophic losses. They have been able to, we have to recognise, shift their economy very effectively into a warfighting mode. They can still gain access to things like the microchips, ball bearings and the like that are absolutely necessary to, to building high-tech equipment. Though, again, I mean, although the report talks about their capacity to bypass sanctions, what I would stress is that sanctions have in, indeed added costs and inconveniences. But really, you know, again, I think it comes down to not just is there the capacity to, to rebuild, but can that actually be politically as well as economically sustained? I mean, again, the report talks about society's willingness to accept the loss of human life is obviously great. And economically, the state appears to be able to continue in financing its war. Well, look, first of all, it is clear that there are political constraints on the state's capacity to take society for granted. The very fact that mobilizations have been delayed. The very fact that, frankly, there is a massive propaganda campaign to lie to the Russian people about the level of their losses. And likewise, economically, it, well, yes, it, it has been able to continue financing its war. But let's not forget that this is coming at a significant cost to society as well as the state as a whole. There is basically no more investment happening within the economy. Secondly, yes, the 2024 budget has this massive 30% commitment to military spending, but its own planning assumptions are that this will decline substantially in 2025 and beyond. So, you know, even the Ministry of Finance is basically making a gamble that it doesn't, we won't have to spend at this level. Whereas this report is more or less assuming that it can actually afford to continue to spend at this level even after the war is over. And to that end, it presents this as a race against time. What it says is that NATO must complete its own repositioning at least one year before Russia reaches war capability. This would offer the Kremlin the chance to recognise in time that the Russian window of opportunity for a successful attack on NATO has not opened. Well, window of opportunity. Again, this, this suggests that NATO is facing an enemy which is intent on invading if it can get away with it. And one has to ask, if that was the case, why have we not seen anything of that so far? Why has actually NATO membership been so important for Russia? 
I mean, frankly, why should you care if countries join NATO if actually you're, you're planning on invading them anyway? You care precisely because you're fully aware that once they're in NATO, once they are under the Article 5 umbrella, they become not quite bulletproof, but essentially beyond the capacity for you to actually use conventional military force against. So, you know, this, this is the thing we, we, we have to be aware of, that in fact, Putin has demonstrated up to now a considerable wariness, a caution, I'd even say a fear of NATO, rather than you know, clearly looking for an opportunity. Otherwise, frankly, there probably were opportunities in which actually the correlation of forces were much more in, in, to Moscow's advantage. I mean, you think about it. I mean, what had happened in the in the West is so many of the armed forces had not only been allowed to run down, but had also been reprofiled essentially for intervention operations in distant parts of the world. They were much, much more geared for fighting, you know, possibly very highly motivated guerrillas in, in, in mountains, but nonetheless guerrillas in mountains, not, you know, serried uh, mechanized armies in, in the plains of northern Europe. You know, those were, I would say times in which Putin could have invaded, if that was what he wanted, and he didn't. So, I mean, look, the report then, which, I mean, has all sorts of, you know, useful and, and important things to say, and I think it is actually really important that there is this debate. I mean, I may disagree with many of the, of, of the elements within this particular report, but the point is, there has to be this discussion, because clearly there will be a security challenge in the future. But what I would broadly say is, look, first of all, if we're talking about force reconstitution, and let's assume just sort of that Russia is willing and able to continue to put the kind of resources that it is currently putting into its military into force reconstitution. Even so, it's not just that Russia has taken heavy losses. Russia has taken heavy losses in many of its best tr troops. I mean, if you look at the special forces, they've pretty much been decimated, for example. And it has also stripped its training capacity away. The people who were actually meant to be there to train ended up being sent in to fight instead. And that has long-term implications. So yes, there is now going to be a new contingent of what we could consider field-trained forces who've learned the bloody lessons in the trenches and rubbled cityscapes of Ukraine. And they, obviously, they bring with them a whole set of new experiences. I mean, actually... You know, we must appreciate the degree to which the Ukraine war is not only providing the Ukrainian forces lessons, but obviously through them, their various allies, but also allowing the Russians to learn a whole load of lessons, whether it's in terms about just how voracious modern war is on artillery and the like, but also on the use of drones, the use of electronic warfare and the like. So yes, of course there will be lessons, but nonetheless, what is currently in, in place is a very rough and ready duct taped together military machine which is about throwing often relatively undertrained troops in in support of the battle-hardened veterans it's not necessarily the machine which is actually able to metabolize huge numbers of new troops get them properly trained so that they can actually go up against NATO forces. When we have to acknowledge that, well, NATO forces may be smaller than we might like, though let's note that, in fact, European NATO without America and Canada still has more troops than the Russians. But 
they're also often better troops, quite frankly. There is a qualitative issue there. So that's the first point. Secondly, at the moment, Russia is maintaining its war effort to a considerable extent by plundering stockpiles. You know, we're seeing increasingly you know, older tanks and, and equipment being fielded, sometimes being given a sort of a quick refresh, being given sort of cages on the top to try and stop uh, kamikaze drones and the like, but essentially tanks which had their day. Now, of course, an older tank in the right place at the right time is still a damn sight more useful than the newest shiny tank that hasn't yet come off the production line. But the point is that, what, if something like, I think the, the current figure is something like 80% of the new, certainly sort of armoured vehicles being deployed into the front, and when I say new, I'm using that with inverted commas around it, actually 80% are reconditioned old things from the stockpiles. The point is that production is still of new vehicles is still relatively low. They are still very hampered by the fact that, for example, the, the French fire control systems that they were using in, are no longer available. And so instead, they're, they're using these old stocks. And that will run out, especially because, uh, by all accounts, many, if not most, of the older vehicles are not actually able to be fielded. The conditions in which they were, they were stored are not, are not, were not so great, and therefore they are now in a position where, fine, they can be cannibalized for spare parts, but they can't actually be then put in the field. Already we've even begun to see old tanks like the T-55 being used in Ukraine. I mean, at this rate, if the Russians were, were meant to be using these stockpiles to help rapid force reconstitution, then you know, how long before they will be fielding World War II vintage T-34s? So let's not forget the fact the degree to which the current capacity of the Russians to rebuild forces depends on a finite source of increasingly aging frames. What else? Well, one can, look, question, one can question whether or not the manpower really will be there. I mean, there's, there's, there's a political and cultural issue, but shall come to in a moment. But there's also the fact that it is clear that Although they are facing fewer challenges than the Ukrainians, just simply because their population is, is that much larger, but nonetheless, they are facing challenges meeting the current need. I mean, already the Russian military is relaxing some of the physical and mental requirements for their recruits. Already we're, we're seeing actually that that is leading to health issues within the armed forces as a whole. I mean, too much is sometimes made of the supposed sort of demographic crisis facing Russia. That's not going to suddenly mean that they're not going to have troops. But on the other hand, it does mean that there's going to be growing competition between the military and the economy for able-bodied people. And that is going to become a challenge. So, you know, before one starts to think about the fact that, yes, they'd have whatever it is, 2.8 million people who have been military trained, if they draw on too many of them, they also risk a massive crisis within the economy, as we're already seeing now. I mean, that 3% unemployment figure within Russia, 2% of that is reckoned to be essentially uh, structural unemployment. In other words, people who can't work, won't work, are in between jobs, but they are transferring or whatever. So in some ways, you've only got 1% of unemployment's worth of spare labour that can still be taken up, whether it's in terms of joining the military or going and working in factories being moved on to full wartime production. Now, that's likely to be, continue to be an issue. Russia doesn't have all the people it would like to have. And, of course, calling on them, 
requires you to accept costs. Sure, you could bring a whole number of people under arms, but either you have to use massive levels of coercion or, as we're seeing now, you actually have to pay them a lot of money. How far is that going to be possible? The Russian economy is not doing badly, but if you look at a lot of the fundamentals, there are real concerns ahead. And if we're talking about something within a three, six, ten-year span beyond the end of the war, you know, in other words, we're talking about times when these problems will have started to bite all the more sharply. The fact that actually Russia has been depleting its currency reserves. The fact that, in fact, the budget is, is not anticipating continued spending on the, on the same sort of level. The fact that there is a lack of investment, which means that at some point factories will start needing to be retooled and so forth. I mean, there are a lot of costs up ahead that, that will have to be factored in. And you may want to spend a huge amount of money rebuilding your military as quickly as you can. But can you do so? And especially because the next point, politics. Again, are Russians going to be willing to accept these costs? And at what point do they start doing something about it? Whether that's in terms of fleeing the country, like during the first mobilization wave, whether it's in terms of protest. And remember, look, my conviction is that if we are going to see significant protest in Russia, it probably will not be sparked by specifically political reasons it will actually be much more practical one. So it could be a, a mobilisation, but it could also be economic problems. If we start to see civilian factories, civilian econ economic sectors, which are no longer being subsidised to the same level, beginning to go under. You know, it tends to be bread and butter issues, literally, that actually generate troubles. And the point is, the more you spend, the more you focus on rebuilding your military, the more you are neglecting other sectors. And then the final point, just, just to re-emphasize this thing, is actually, you know, is there any evidence that Russia really wants to have a direct military confrontation with a bigger, more populous, vastly richer and more advanced Western alliance? I can see all kind of ways in which it absolutely wants to subvert, undermine, challenge and so forth, but direct invasion, that, well, we still have to address. But, I was going to say on the other hand, probably by now I'd be quite octopoidal in how many different hands I'm sort of presenting, does it mean we just should just sit back and say, look, Russia can't get anywhere, Russia doesn't want to do anything? No, of course not. This is, I'm not actually saying that therefore this is an argument for apathy. First of all, what really has been highlighted has been precisely the danger of defence freeloading. And here, this is why I think the report sort of has such a sharp focus, Germany really needs to learn this lesson. I mean, I'm not necessarily saying that it should directly take the example of Poland, which is actually you know, arming for conventional full-scale mechanised war on a pretty massive level, but that is in part, I think, for, for political reasons. Yeah, but nonetheless, actually, countries like Germany do indeed need to get their act together. Not simply because of the fact that uh, the nasty Putin is, is going to un unleash his, his legions, but precisely because, actually, that is the nature of alliances that you have to accept that you have responsibilities. And frankly, Germany, and Germany is not alone in this, has been to a degree shirking this. Then there is a need, I, I would say, and this is a really more important point, is to address the speed of response. 
The central element of the paper, which is right, does note just how damn long it takes for the West to basically do almost anything, but certainly anything that involves construction and the like, that it has very long timelines. Now, its argument, therefore, is that for that reason, the West needs to sort of move now to actually, therefore, preempt the poss possibility that the Russians can outbuild more quickly. However, I would suggest that maybe that's actually the wrong way of looking at it. Perhaps the aim is actually that one should address how quickly the West can respond, rather than just simply saying, look, we know we're going to be, take forever, so let's just have to plan for the worst, which is what this is. I mean, this is essentially very much going for worst-case planning. Well, unless of that, let's actually put ourselves in a position in which we can be more nimble. And again, I'm not saying it's easy. It has all kinds of implications, particularly for industrial policy, which is intrinsically boring, and therefore I, I don't really want to spend too much time looking at it. But nonetheless, the very fact that the West is slow is not something one just simply accepts as a given and tries to work round. It's something that could be addressed. Because if that were to be addressed, it would mean that if we do see a Russia that seems to be committing itself to building up the kind of forces that are specifically geared for a war with NATO, which after all are different from the, the type, types of forces you need for a war with Georgia or interventions into Syria or whatever, then the West can, can respond. I'm almost otherwise um, reminded of the parallel of what happened at the beginning of World War I, in which you know, Russia didn't want, actually pretty much like all of the, of the powers who got sucked into this terrible conflict, Russia didn't really want a war. However, it also knew that it was much, much slower to mobilise than Germany. So there was this terrible dilemma. Do you accept the Germans' promises that they have no aggressive intent, but knowing full well that if they're lying, once you start to see them mobilise, it'll be too late. You will not be able to mobilise equivalent. Or do you therefore, as a result, say, we cannot afford to wait. We must mobilise now just in case. Which, of course, to the Germans, when they did mobilise, made them think, OK, the Russians are coming for us. We need to strike while we can. I mean, it was precisely the slowness of the Russian response that actually made the war more likely to happen. So my view is, in fact, let's focus on speed of response rather than anything else. If we can build faster, then we can respond more quickly than the Russians or we, we can respond quickly enough to Russian intent. Third point I'd make is, look, something that the report says which is absolutely correct is that although the Russians have taken a terrible hammering to their ground forces, that their air force and indeed their navy is still essentially untouched. I mean, the Black Sea Fleet has taken you know, a certain amount of hits and so forth, absolutely, but that's just one of their fleets. And likewise, the air force, well, I would suggest that because the Russians have been quite timid about using, using their, their, their air force, it obviously has denied them certain sort of advantages in Ukraine, but it does mean that they have kept, kept those forces to one side. So yes, look, we still have to accept that Russia retains capabilities. Still, though, when it, when it comes down to it, and maybe I'm a bit old-fashioned here, I do have a sense that the ground forces are really the, the ones that are going to matter in any such conflict. They're the ones who actually occupy territory. If you honestly think that the Russians are coming for NATO because they want to expand their empire, 
Well, that involves territorial control and that involves ground forces. So, you know, let's, let's keep the focus there. But, and look, this is my final point, and I'm fully aware that this has been something of a rant, but what else is a podcast but an exercise in egotism? My big concern is not that we are missing the fact that Russia still has largely untouched air force and navy and obviously strategic rocket forces and the like, but that we are actually missing the different kinds of security threats that Russia could pose. I would love to feel that when the Ukraine war ends will be that wonderful kumbaya moment when we all realise, like the, the point of the end of a feel-good Christmas film, that we're all people and we should be friends. Somehow, somehow, I don't think that's actually going to happen. And at the very, very least, so long as Putin is in the Kremlin, and, you know, we, we know now he is reluctantly committed to returning, but so long as Putin is in the Kremlin, we will have an antagonist in Moscow. Again, I would very much sort of frame it in different terms from the Degas-Pair authors, but nonetheless, there will be an antagonist. However, the point is that we may be missing what kind of security threat or relegating it to a, a secondary role. I mean, this is, this is the problem. We do have a tendency to overcompensate. You know, at one point, we regarded our security needs as basically being about the capacity to fight these intervention wars, wars of choice fought distantly from our shores, and therefore we needed all these well-trained light infantry who could be dropped in the mountains and the, and the deserts. Now the pendulum has swung. Oh my gosh, no, we need to be in a position to fight a big land war, which again has very, very different military and indeed political implications. Well, sometimes what comes next is not the same as what came last. So I think, you know, we, we need to be thinking much more sort of sharply about the different ways in which Russia can cause us problems. If we are going to commit to a massive armament program, one that is meant to create this force that could you know, deter any conceivable Russian aggression, and to do so within, what, five years or, or two years, depending on whom you believe about the speed of potential Russian reconstitution. That has major implications for, again, government spending, government taxing, and policy priorities. And inevitably, first of all, it, it runs the risk of, of generating the kind of domestic discontent, particularly because it'll be happening at a time when, at best, we will have only lacklustre economic uh, expansion in, in Europe. But anyway, you know, if we're not spending money on, on hospitals and social care and all those other sorts of things, then it generates the potential for political upset precisely of the kind that the, the Russians have demonstrated themselves quite willing and able to try and magnify. It also runs the risk that we're not spending money on things like counterintelligence services, you know, all the various things that can address the Russians' capacity to use covert means of, of subverting our societies. So my, 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 my thought is this, without getting consumed by the terrible spectacle of the Ukraine war, and without feeling that in order to make our case we have to present Russia as some kind of expansionist Mordor whose orcs will spill out over all corners of Middle-earth unless they are met by the serried armies of the light. Well, instead, what we need to be doing is actually having some kind of realistic understanding of precisely what the Russians' intents are, not just their capabilities, but also their limitations. I mean, yes, they are not two foot tall, 
but they are not necessarily quite as, as dramatically impressive in their ability to particularly mobilize and use resources, as, as might be assumed. And perhaps most importantly of all, we need to be in a position to actually identify specific signs of Russian intent and most importantly, respond in time. I really do think that that, that is the, the key lesson that personally I would draw from the potential challenge. Is not, no, come on, let's, let's be honest, the Russians are lovely, they wouldn't do anything against NATO. But rather that NATO and the West needs to address its speed rather than to mobilise prematurely for a threat that may well never exist. But that's just my take. The main thing is, I mean, as I said, having sort of trashed this report, um, or at least, no, trashed implies successfully, because other people, I'm sure, will, will, will disagree fundamentally with what I say. But let's say having dis expressed my disagreements with elements of this, of this report, what I absolutely would say is that I think it's incredibly valuable that we have this debate. One of the problems is that we didn't think enough about Russia before February 2022. We need to bring Russia much more into the foreground of our discussions. And that means thinking about Russia today. It means thinking about Russia in five years' time and ten years' time and even, God help us, in 20 years' time. Of course, the further we, we push out into the future, our, our sort of discussions, the more we're actually talking about science fiction rather than, than, than reality. But we do need to be thinking in those terms. So, yes, let's think about Russia. I may think about it in a way that is different from the authors of this report, but we need to be engaging in these discussions. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. <laughs>